I haven't had a chance to tell you about the work that we did in Michigan two weeks ago. I wanted to just comment about that. As many of you know, I've several times gone to a small church about two hours north of Detroit to help with the gospel work there. It's a very small congregation. A typical Sunday attendance might be seven or eight with just two men now who are members of that group. But we've been going there for the last several years. In fact, this was the fifth time that various ones have gone there to help them do a Bible study in the park sort of thing. In fact, our practice of Bible study in the park is sort of patterned after that little church in Deckerville, Michigan, where we started that work about, well, this is the fifth year, so four years ago, this is the fifth occurrence of their Bible studies in the park. They have a tremendous response, and we were very encouraged again this year. Again, remember, this church typically would have an attendance of seven or eight. So the first night, we did it on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night at the park. Thursday night, we had 18 in attendance, eight of those being true, legitimate visitors from the community. We had the same number and the same response on Friday night. And then on Saturday night, we had 20, I think, with six community visitors. And on Sunday morning, when we met for worship, there were two community visitors. And so we thought that was just an overwhelming response for the size of the congregation. And I tried to encourage the folks there that they should be uh, very uh, excited about that outcome. For instance, we don't have that kind of response here, much much larger congregation, but we don't have that kind of response when we have a gospel effort. And so it was quite encouraging. I appreciate you all providing me the opportunity to be a part of that. I say all of that just to simply report that work and, and to thank you for your support in doing it. But also I wanted to use that as a segue for our brief study tonight. Every night in the park there in Michigan after... The preaching, there were two of us there, two preachers, and we each preached for about 30 minutes and then opened it up for questions. One of the, one of the visitors asked a question about this text in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9 verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and we forbade him because he followed not with us. And Jesus said to him, forbid him not for he that is not against us is for us. In the course of our preaching and teaching there, we had emphasized the, the idea of Bible authority, do Bible things in Bible ways, uh, and so forth, uh, teach the truth, practice the truth, all the kind of things that we commonly emphasize. And one of the visitors asked, based upon this text, he said, wouldn't this suggest that we can do different things, that we can come from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different doctrinal beliefs and practices, but as long as we are all proclaiming allegiance to Jesus, wouldn't this text suggest that we ought to tolerate one another? And so we talked about that, uh, but I thought it might be worth us reviewing it as well, because the passage is used that way sometimes. Uh, I, I think it's perverted and twisted and stretched beyond the intended purpose of the text, and it's being used by some, even by some in churches of Christ, to suggest the idea that we should refrain from exposing people in religious error. We should refrain from condemning religious false teachers. As long as someone has some allegiance to Christ, we should accept them. Uh, from this text, they might argue along this line. This man was, they would say this. Now, this would be their argument. They would say, this man, whoever is mentioned in this text, was not following Christ along with Peter, James, and John and the other apostles. 
He was independent. Uh, he was uh, not in Jesus' group, yet the Lord said, do not forbid him. And that being the case, even though someone may not be in our group, meaning the Lord's church, the churches of Christ, even though they may not be in our group, even if they happen to be in a denominational body, or, or maybe they're teaching some things that are wrong, uh, so long as they are not against us, that is, so long as they profess allegiance to Jesus, we should not forbid them or criticize them. That's the suggested argument. Now, that has opened up the floodgates, so to speak, and some have really taken that to heart. And again, some, uh, even in Churches of Christ, are going that direction. I don't know if you remember, just a few years ago, one of the last big crusades that Billy Graham had was in Nashville. And, and before his health failed so bad that he couldn't do those big public revivals any longer, he had one in, in Nashville. At the time, several of us were quite concerned uh, upset, in fact, to find out that uh, Rubel Shelley, who at the time was preaching for the Woodmont Hills Church of Christ in Nashville, was on the steering committee for that big Billy Graham revival. And in the bulletin of the Woodmont Hills Church of Christ, this is what they said about it. Now, this is a Church of Christ in Nashville. They were promoting the Billy Graham crusade. Now, Billy Graham is a Baptist. He teaches salvation by faith only. But this Woodmont Hills Church was participating in, in promoting the Billy Graham crusade. And here's what they said. This is just a brief quote from their bulletin. Woodmont Hills supports the decision of Dr. Graham and his ministry team to be in Nashville. It is important for the members of our church family to understand why we will be enthusiastic participants. Billy Graham presents Jesus Christ as mankind's only hope for eternal life. He said, Billy Graham says, my one purpose in life is to help people find a personal relationship with God, and I believe, which I believe comes through knowing Christ. If it is right to link arms with other believers to oppose things like pornography and drugs, surely it cannot be wrong to join with them to preach Christ crucified. And so they say, with our blessing as shepherds at Woodmont Hills, Rubel Shelley is serving as a general committee member on behalf of this outreach effort. Several of our shepherds or elders wrote letters of invitation to Dr. Graham to encourage him to come to our city. Training sessions for crusade workers will be hosted on our property, and we ask all of you to pray for the success of this effort to exalt Jesus Christ in our great city. Now, how in the world could members of the Church of Christ go there? How could they, when I say go there, how could they go to that point in which they would encourage and support a false teacher, Billy Graham. Billy Graham is a false teacher, folks, and we all understand that. He does not teach the truth about what one must do in order to be saved. And yet here's an example of some members of the Lord's Church who have gotten so far afield that they are encouraging that. How would they endorse that? How could they accept that? Well, they may very well make the argument that is suggested from this text that if he's not against us, he's for us, don't forbid him. Might be that argument. How would we answer that? So that's what I want us to study with you for a few minutes tonight. We want to talk about this unidentified exorcist. In the text, this man was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but we don't know who he was. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how he received those powers or anything about him. So he was an exorcist, but he's unidentified to us. We don't know any of the detailed information about him. How would we answer the argument 
that this case might suggest that we can have a broader fellowship and we don't have to be so concerned about doctrinal purity and so forth. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Again, before we start into that, I want to add words to those that Joel already mentioned. We're glad for everyone who's present tonight. Thanks for coming. Uh, It's a busy time for many of you, I know, and we appreciate the fact that you make special effort to be present on Sunday evening. Thank you very much. Thanks to all who are visiting with us tonight. We appreciate you. Please come again. What can we say? Well, first of all, let's comment about what would make people, what's the motivation for people like Rubel Shelley and Woodmont Hills and others who want to use the case of this unidentified exorcist to say we ought to be more tolerant. What's motivating that? Uh, I think it's clear that some, sadly even some of our own brethren, have grown weary of what they might call intolerant militants. They, they would argue that we are intolerant, that we are militantly intolerant of those who teach and practice things uh, that are not in accordance with the Scripture. Uh, these are the kind of people who do not want preachers and others to speak out against false teachers and denominational error. They don't want to hear it, and they don't want it to, they don't want it to be voiced in the church. Their real interest is to broaden the base of fellowship, uh, to embrace everybody who has some sort of allegiance to the name of Christ regardless of their specific practice. And so, what, what's really behind the argument from this text in Luke 9, and the parallel is in Mark 9, we'll look at it in a minute. What's really behind the use of this text is an interest in downplaying the teaching of doctrinal purity and encouraging the sort of open embrace of all who believe in Jesus in one form or another. And so that's what they're trying to do. Now, I think, it, I think that's clear that that's what they're trying to do. And I, and I just ask you to compare that with plain teachings in Scripture. For instance, you remember well 2 Timothy 4, beginning verse 2. The Apostle Paul predicted that this sort of thing would come to pass. In 2 Timothy 4, beginning verse 2, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. Don't you, don't you believe that what Paul predicted there is coming to pass? Now, I'm not saying that this is the first time that that sort of thing has ever happened, but we've certainly reached a point in our time when people are heaping to themselves teachers with itching ears, and those teachers are turning away their ears from the truth and turning them to falsehoods, fables, as he mentions them there. So I think that's clearly what's going on here. That's what would motivate a person to take a rather obscure incident in the life of Jesus and and use that as a basis to make an argument along the lines that we have been suggesting. Now, as we analyze this text, I think we need to just pay careful attention to what Jesus actually said here. If you're a careful student, you're going to look closely at what Jesus actually said about this man. And I want you to notice that Jesus did not say that he was teaching or doing anything different than those other disciples that we know by name, Peter, Andrew, James and John and the other apostles. Notice in, in that text, Luke 9, Jesus answered and said, or John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and we forbade him because he followed not with us. Jesus said, 
Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for... All Jesus said was, he's not against us. He, he, he did not say, well, he's teaching something different, but he's okay, let him alone. Jesus didn't say that. He just said he's not against us. And therefore, he is for us. To say more than that, to, to argue that Jesus, by making this expression, was saying, oh, it's okay, what you teach doesn't matter, uh, just let him alone. You know, he, 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 as long as he's not denying me, as long as he is not saying this man is not the Messiah, this man is not the Son of God, as long as he has even nominal agreement with us, leave him alone. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus did not say he's a false teacher, but leave him alone anyway. If Jesus had said that, Jesus would have been contradicting his own words in the text that Jack read for us at the start of the services. Jesus frequently taught, and, and we have an abundance of teaching in the New Testament that says that if someone's teaching false doctrine, they've got to be identified and avoided. Remember here in Matthew 7 where Jack read earlier, beware of false prophets. Well, why? If it doesn't matter what they teach, why would we have to be aware of them? Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, a good tree... Uh, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt, corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Notice what Jesus said here. You're going to have to make a judgment. You need to be careful, and you need to make a judgment. And you'll be able to tell uh, these false teachers by their fruits, and you need to avoid them. Look in the parallel text uh, to the one we're studying tonight in Mark 9, beginning verse 38. John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us, and we forbade him, because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. Notice here, Jesus suggested that this, what is obvious here, John said, we caught, we found him casting out devils. Well, that's a miracle. Jesus acknowledged that it was a miracle. Now think about that for a minute. If this guy's a false teacher, and yet he's doing miracles, then we're in huge trouble, aren't we? How are we going to tell the truth from error? If false teachers can also do miracles, as well as truth teachers can do miracles, how are we going to be able to tell truth from error? The very fact that John said he was casting out devils and Jesus seemed to acknowledge he was casting out devils proves to us that this man was not a false teacher. And so to say that the passage is authorizing us to have a tolerance for people who teach error or to, who practice things that are not true simply can't be the case. Jesus said, leave him alone because he is a truth teacher, and he is a man who works miracles. John had one single objection here, and I think that's worth noticing. He didn't, John didn't accuse the man of doing anything wrong. He didn't accuse the man of teaching a false doctrine. John said he follows not with us. The New American Standard Version there says he does not follow along with us. One other translation said he isn't in our group. Basically, John's argument is, is that he is not in our traveling company. We've got, a, we've got a, a, a traveling company here composed of Jesus 
and the apostles, and he's not one of us. He's not in this group. And so we, we told him that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing because he's not in our immediate traveling company. And that was his only objection to assume that he was teaching or practicing something different takes a huge leap, right? You'd have to make a, a huge leap that is not justified by the text in order to come to that conclusion. John's only objection is he's not in our traveling company. And Jesus said, let him alone. We know that at the very moment that John made that objection, that there were other faithful disciples besides the twelve. You know, if John said he's not in our group. Well... There were plenty of other people who weren't in their immediate group, too, because right after this happened, Luke 9 records, right at the end of Luke 9, we have this question that John asked about the unidentified exorcist. Immediately following, as you move into chapter 10 of Luke, it says, beginning verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Therefore he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways, and to whatever city ye enter, and they receive you. Eat such things are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say to them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Where did those 70 people come from? He, he, it says he appointed 70 others besides the apostles who were in his immediate traveling country. Where did they come from? This passage proves, and remember, this follows instantly, immediately upon the heels of John asking about that unidentified exorcist in chapter 9. And immediately thereafter, Jesus is busy appointing 70 other men, and he gives them miracle-working powers to heal the sick. Where'd they come from? And so that simply uh, emphasizes that Although John was objecting because this one man wasn't in their group, we know that there were plenty of other faithful disciples besides the twelve, and some of those were actually commissioned by Jesus to be performing miracles. To argue, therefore, then, that this other guy was some sort of a false teacher, but Jesus said, leave him alone, tolerate him, that's just simply a wrong conclusion. I think the context, if we look at a little bit broader context here, we can show what prompted the question. Luke 9, here's the text that we've been studying. John says, we found this fellow. He was casting out devils. We forbade him because he followed not with us. Back that up a minute. Go back to verse 46 beginning. There arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, said, he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Just before these verses that we're studying tonight, there had been... A, a dissension among the apostles as to who was the greatest. And Jesus said, really, you, if you want to be great, uh, you, you've got to be a servant, right? Uh, Jesus understood what was in their minds. But it was in the context of them quibbling about who's better than who, who's, who's the greatest here. It was in the context of them quibbling about that that John brings up, and John's a good guy, right? He's but he was wrapped up in this jealousy over position among the apostles, too. In the context of arguing of who's the greatest among them, John brings up, well, well, let me tell you something we found, Master. We found this guy out here casting devils, uh, casting out devils in thy name. And we told him, stop doing that, because you're not in our group. And Jesus responds, forbid him not. He that is not against us is for us. 
I think we can see in that, if you look at the, the, the context that leads up to the question, we can see that what we really have there was some spiritual immaturity on the part of the apostles. Uh, and you might even interpret John's question to Jesus uh, as him trying to curry special favor with Jesus, trying to elevate himself in rank among the apostles when Jesus pointed out that they shouldn't be doing that anyway. So again, I think if we look at the context, we can see that there was somewhat corrupt motives that prompted John to ask the question in the first place. Bottom line, I think we'd have to say clearly that it's a perversion of the text to use it to excuse false teachers or attempt to broaden fellowship. If you're going to use this passage this way, the way that we've suggested in our study tonight, if you're going to try to misuse this passage to say, stop condemning false teachers, stop teaching against those who maybe believe and practice differently than we do, if you're going to use that text in that way, how are you going to reconcile it with other passages like Galatians 1, 8 and 9? Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now to you again, if any man preach any other gospel to you than that you have received, let him be accursed. That seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like if he's not against, he's not against us, don't forbid him, leave him alone. He may teach and practice different things than we do, but don't bother him. That doesn't seem to fit with this, does it? doesn't seem to fit with what Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy, one of your jobs is make sure that people are not teaching other doctrine. Well, those who are using the case of the unidentified exorcist would say, Paul told Timothy wrong. Paul told Timothy, make sure they're not teaching any doctrine. But Jesus said, leave them alone. Forbid them not. If they're not against us, they're for us. You see that? And so to use the passage the way that some are trying to use it is a perversion that would force a contradiction with plenty of other plain statements in the Scripture. Well, that's our study for tonight, and I hope it's helpful. And I don't know if that's ever been thrown up to you or anybody ever asked you a question along those lines, but it is being used that way, and therefore it's valuable for us to have an answer. That's Bottom line, that's not the tone of, this, of that text uh, we can kind of, by contextually looking at the question that John asked, we can see that there was some spiritual immaturity involved that prompted him to ask the question. Overall, you'd have to say to use it that way would force a contradiction with plenty of other plain statements of Scripture. Appreciate your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation, as we always do when we're together. As we do this, please consider your soul's situation. Uh, if you need to obey the gospel, we would encourage you to do that. The simple gospel plan of salvation being here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. If you're a Christian already but you've fallen away, please come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.